Welcome to the She Recovers podcast. I'm Taryn Strong, co-founder with my mother Dawn Nickel of She Recovers. She Recovers believes that we are all recovering from something. And here on She Recovers podcast, we examine the healing power of connection and intentional living, as well as what happens in our lives when we put down our past stories and pick up our soul's true purpose. In this episode, Erin has a beautiful conversation with Tiffany Swedeen. Tiffany has been a longtime member of our She Recovers community, and she is also a She Recovers coach. She is also on top of that an ICU nurse, so I would like to take this moment to thank Tiffany for her service and everything that she has done and continues to do not only for the recovery community, but for our healthcare community as well and being someone in the front lines at this time. So thank you, Tiffany, and thank you everyone for tuning in and listening. I know you're going to enjoy. So I am so excited to welcome to the She Recovers podcast, Tiffany Swadeen, my dear friend and a um, She Recovers coach and a uh, a nurse on the front lines of the COVID-19 crisis. So Tiffany, thank you so much for making some time to join oh, us you're today. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. So what I thought we would do is we'll start our conversation off kind of the way we start our, our normal podcast uh, off, which is um, asking you how you got into your recovery journey. And then as we move through the conversation, I would love to hear from you, you know, how you're using um, – your recovery skills in this moment as a nurse and and what you think we can do collectively as a recovery community to support one another and support, um, you know, our medical providers. Yeah, sounds good. All right. So, of course, our question that we love to ask our guests is, what brought you into the recovery space? Were you struggling with the behavior, relationship, past event, All of these are something else. I was um, definitely struggling with a behavior. So at about mm, 34-ish years old, my early 30s, I found myself uh, fully addicted to opiates and alcohol. And um, really, that was a a way to deal with decades of self-loathing and tumultuous relationships. And I think it all stemmed from my childhood home and religious trauma I went through, um, basically in my 30s with a teen daughter working full-time as a nurse going through job burnout, I went to substances to deal. So that's uh, that's how I started getting into recovery was because I needed to get clean from substances. And it wasn't totally by my... Um, you know, I wasn't like a completely willing participant at first. It was uh, requested by my employer <laughs> that I get some help. Okay. Well, let me back you up just a little bit. So why don't you talk with us about your childhood um, childhood situation and, and how maybe, you know, bring us into that moment where you're a very young mom with um, a kid and you're... Uh, you're a nurse with an, an addiction. Sure. So my hmm, my childhood home was uh, divided. I had a father who was a very generous, loving man, but also an alcoholic, a functioning alcoholic. 
we have a long line of depression, anxiety, and addiction from that side of the family. And then my mother um, was the opposite. She didn't drink at all. She was in charge of us kids, my brothers and I. She was more in charge of the raising of us and our, um, our religious upbringing. So I was raised in a very conservative religious home with an alcoholic dad. <laughs> so it was very confusing. But what I learned from that as a woman was that I basically just in simple terms was never good enough. I just was not good enough. And uh, we were raised to, to change behavior based on feeling guilty and fear. And um, it was a pretty like fire and brimstone kind of religion. Like I didn't believe I would make it to 16 years old. I thought the apocalypse was going to happen then, not now, <laughs> 39. <laughs> But yeah, I, I, that was the kind of religion I was raised in. And I had a lot of self-loathing and I had a lot of feelings and I didn't know where to put them. I wasn't allowed to talk about boys. I wasn't allowed to talk about sex. I didn't know my own body parts. I, it, it was very confusing. So by 16, I um, had tried all the drugs. I mean, I went through a, a massive rebellion that was pretty short-lived because I got pregnant. And I chose to have my daughter. And because of the conservative home I was in, I was pushed to get married at 16 and be be a wife and a mom, you know, for real, like do it for real, get an apartment. And um, I, I took to that. I mean, it, it made sense to me to be productive. But then I, I think I spent the next couple of decades trying to make up for my mistakes and overachieve and prove something. So, so for decades, I, I just tried to, to prove my worth, to prove it to myself, to prove it to my, my mom still in some way, even though I had left that, that church and that religion, um, and, and really to prove it like to the public. And so I was just on this race to, to achieve. I wanted to achieve a home and a white picket fence and a, I wanted a, a family, like I want, all the social conditioning that we have that says you need to be a wife and a mom and have it all and work full time and, you know, look pretty and have the dog. I was trying to do all of that by like 21 years old. And, and I didn't have the skills, by the way, <laughs> I didn't have the role models. I didn't have the skills. And so it wasn't working out. I mean, I got married a couple of times and I got divorced and it wasn't working out. And I couldn't, and I didn't know why. I didn't know who to ask. Like, why are these things not working? Why can't I make this happen? And um, there's a lot of pain with that. There's a lot of emotional pain. And then there were also migraines that started in my early 20s. Um, and that's what led to those things together, the emotional and physical pain, confusion, and heartache led to use of opiates and heavy drinking. So just, I just want to take you back to being 16. You, you did get married did. at 16. I did. That, uh, right? yeah. My daughter's dad and I married 10 days before she was born in his parents' home <laughs> with my, um, my parents there with, you know, as much of their blessing, I guess, as they could give, they, they felt like, okay, you're, you're going to be an adult. So, be an adult, do it. 
Um, I was so naive, Aaron. I mean, I was like, it's a blessing. It is a blessing that I was so naive. If I knew what I was up against, I, I would have like, I don't know, run away. Um, I believed as many teenagers do that I was an adult and that I could handle it. And I didn't really need anybody to do it for me and that I was going to be just fine. And I was going to be the best mom ever. Um, and yeah, that's, that's how it was. It was in, in a living room and I, you know, felt like I was in love at the time as any teenager would. And then and what was the, what was your partner? What was he like? He was, uh, an 18-year-old boy. That's what he was like. He was an 18-year-old boy that I, you know, I met when I was 15. I snuck out to to meet him. We smoked weed together. We drank together. I mean, do you want the details? <laughs> you want? No, I'm I'm just yeah, he, I I don't I mean, I don't I don't I'm not asking for specific details. I'm just trying to understand. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. What's, you know, I'm just trying to understand where, he how this all happened, which, you know, what? maybe I've actually, you know, a little bit of a, a sideways turn here. Um, you know, sometimes we can try too hard to understand why things happened and how they happened. And, um, but really when it comes to this conversation, I am just trying to move, move you through, sort of the stages of yeah. growth. I mean, as I picture you in that living room with your, you know, disapproving parents and I'm a, in my imagination, like this scrawny 18 year old boy who is, you know, just as ignorant as you could imagine an 18 year old boy to be. And there's beautiful Tiffany with your long red hair and her very pregnant belly with the best of intentions, just kind of ready to take it on, right? I mean, that's kind of what I'm yes, picturing. That's exactly it. With, but with the background of never even having a conversation about sex with an adult person, right? Not even knowing what I was doing to get pregnant, really. It was, I was so so naive because I wasn't supposed to listen in sex ed class. I wasn't supposed to, I was supposed to, you know, stand. And I did, you know, I stood with my church in like anti-abortion picketing lines just a couple of years before that as a 12 year old. I mean, that's what I knew. Abstinence was the only way sex was evil unless it was with your, you know, adult married partner. And it was for procreation. So all of my 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 sexual life from because I I think I was probably fifteen um, with a partner before Caitlin's dad was just based on on just rebellion like and and confusion and wanting to know what it was that was so special you know why was it so taboo and why was this so forbidden and why was I not allowed to be a part of it right. So he, he told Caitlin's dad told me that he could not get anyone pregnant. I mean, he, he was like, we don't need condoms because I can't get anyone pregnant. I didn't have any reason to not believe him. 
<laughs> at 18, he had definitely tested out that yeah. theory and knew and knew it to be true. <laughs> but I, but I still, you know, one thing I'll say, my parents did well, and my dad specifically was he taught work ethic, and I was, you know, we were kind of a middle class. My mom didn't have to work you know, my, with three kids, she was a homemaker. My dad worked full time as an insurance agent and we did okay. Right. We did okay. And it was always expected that we would go to college. Uh, we were expected to have good grades. I was still a 4.0 student. Um, I had a lot of respect for authority besides being rebellious. Like I was, I, I, at my heart, I really did. I cared what my teachers thought. I, I cared what the community thought. And, um, and I just, I took it on blindly, like I am going to do this and it's going to be fine, but it it wasn't really fine. Right. I mean, there's in some sense it was, I, I raised Caitlin and, and I hung out with the, the real grownups, just like I was one, you know, she was in kindergarten and I was like 19 and I hung out with the adults, but I, I had a double life from a very young age still. I mean, I was using, I used substances um, from like when, when her dad and I got divorced at 17 years old, uh, <laughs> I was using substances to cope drinking and um, like methamphetamines to feel, they made me feel superhuman, right? Like I could take everything on and nobody knew that. And I stopped that on my own. Um, like a year and a half later, I didn't know anything about recovery. I mean, I didn't talk to anybody about anything, right? So there was a lot that was not fine. I was just um, trial and error, trying things out, seeing if they worked, trying to figure out how to cope, feeling a lot of like unhappy, depressed, anxious feelings, and not knowing where to go, because the only place I'd ever been told to go was to to pray. And, and that hadn't worked out for me <laughs> so well. So Tiffany, what do you make of that ignorance that you were in? How do you, when you think back on it now, what what do you think about that? Like, what do I think about my myself as? Why there was so much ignorance there? Why why were there was there an effort to keep information, and and that created a dependency? Or was it just cultural and there was, you know, there wasn't necessarily, um, you know, an ill intent behind it? I think there's layers of that. I think there are people with ill intent. I mean, I, we, my family went through multiple churches with um, leaders who ended up in jail and embezzling and uh, molestation. And there, yeah, there, there are layers of intent, right? In, in in my own in my personal family, my immediate family, I no, I don't believe there was. I believe it was a, a an act of desperation. It was it was my mother's way of coping. Of she was struggling herself, and she found a community that she felt would help, and it was a way to protect us. I, I mean, a hundred percent. She she wanted to protect us from the world, from worldly things, from the secular world. You know, I wasn't, I didn't listen to like the radio <laughs> or any, anything other than Christian music until I was like 14 or 15. Um, 
yeah, it was protection. It just backfired, yeah. you know, but, but it backfired, but also, I mean, who made me who I am today. And I have a great understanding of that religion and, and a ton of compassion for my mom. So I wouldn't say at this point, I wouldn't say it backfired, but you know, as like a 15 year old rebellious kid, yes, I would say like, good, you know, good job trying to keep me abstinent. That didn't work out. Yeah. I asked because, you know, I've, um, I traveled to the Dominican Republic a few years ago and was part of a medical mission to bring um, information to young girls in um, young girls there who are live in poverty. And these girls are moms. So they are 15, 16, 17 year old girls living in poverty. And they um, e- are either pregnant or just have had a baby. And some of the, um, you know, the information that we offered them was very, some of, some of it was quite simple. Uh, wash your hands. And, um, and that there's no need to ever put anything inside of yourself. So you don't need to put soap inside of yourself. Um, just some really, what I, what I, in my, you know, educated world thought was uh, basic advice had was lacking there. And as I have reflected on that over the years, I, I did, I have come, I have come to, um, I mean, as you said, it is layers, you know, they're, they're, it's complex. The, the ignorance is, it's a complex situation. And yet, um, the ignorance is so there was, I was just shocked. There was no red tent. Do you know what I mean? I always thought there would be this red tent where women could get information from aunties and that there would be, um, there would be knowledge passed down and that was not there. That was not the case. And I've just reflected on that over the years, you know, whether or not that was, intentional? Is it intentional to keep women ignorant? And in the end, where I am, where I've landed right now is, yes, that there is an intent um, to keep women from their intuition and to keep women from um, from knowledge and to keep women subservient. <laughs> I mean, I, I know this sounds, you know, this can sound um, strident, but that's, that's where I am right now. Uh, and um, it's not just women. It's not just young girls who um, are are ignorant. I think that one of the things I have found, and we can talk about your coaching business, because one of the things I have found in my coaching experience is that women are desperate to get in touch with their intuition, and that um, helping women find that voice within them is so empowering. And there is your knowledge and there is your red tent. There is something there to that experience. Yeah. yeah it's inside. I mean, I, I, I only thought about that in the last few months. I have, I'm very empathic to a painful degree. And I, looking back, I have always known the right answer. I've always known. And yet I made a different decision when my inner compass, which I did not have words for that when I was younger, not even a couple years ago did I really have words for that. When it said, whoa, stop, you know, when I 
went to get married again at um, 29 years old and all these red flags and this, you know, it was a, a very terrible 14 month marriage, but we'd been together for years and all these red flags, everything told me run from this. This is ridiculous. This is not a lifelong relationship. And I just moved forward in the direction of, of no, don't do this. <laughs> just kept going. I, and I realized in the last few months, I don't know that anyone, man or woman, ever said to me, what does your gut say to you? What do you say? What, what feels right to you in this moment, <clears throat> truly in your heart and in your gut? It's always been, well, do a list of pros and cons or, well, what, what do you think it's going to get you? You know, what, what do you, how will you benefit or how will your daughter benefit from this situation? Or, well, everybody's supposed to have a partner, right? So, I mean, I had some, I had a friend say when I did speak up and say, I don't know if this is right. She's like, well, you know, a lot of people at work would love to have a guy like that. So if you drop him, somebody's going to pick him up, right? That, that's the kind of <laughs> advice that we give each other. So yes, in my coaching business, luckily, thankfully, I have met through recovery so many women that do pose that question, that have taught me that intuition is real and true and meaningful. And I get to pass that on and not and, and say that what does your inner compass, if you want to call it that, or your, I've written a blog on the GPS, the guiding protective service, right? What does that say to you? And why do you have any, why would you have any reason to ignore it or deny it? Because I bet it's never been wrong. Yeah. And, you know, that's really what I, I mean, I took away so much from my experience when I was doing medical missions to, um, you know, to underserved countries, but that experience was so bonding because what I, what I realized is while that those, while those girls seem to have not to be lacking, um, information about like their physical health, all women are lacking information about our intuitive health and that there's a bond there. You know, we're all, we all women need to recognize this and help each other tap into that. And it was just, you know, in a moment, in a global moment, like we're in right now, where the, the need for connection and the reality of connection is so apparent. I just have just, in the past few days, I've just been thinking a lot about that and thinking a lot about those girls and, you know, how they're faring in this and, um, and, more determined than ever. It's just made me more determined than ever to go ahead and and start saying honestly, like some things that maybe people aren't going to want to hear. Like the fact that I do think that this kind of information and this, this encouragement to check in with yourself and recognize the inner leader, that that has been kept from women and kept from men too. It's just been our focus here is women. So I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to stick with that. But that this is, you know, this is the change that one of the things that needs to change as we move through this globally into a healing. I just think that is absolutely just one of the key um, fundamental changes that, you know, I hope we see. Yeah, 100%. 
Okay, so back to your story. Okay. <laughs> so why don't you – so you're moving through life. And I mean, I say back to your story, but honestly, it's, it's, it reminds me – I just see layers of connection everywhere these days. And so, you know, your story has different details than maybe my story or others. But what I really see is a 16-year-old girl armed with some inner fire – who is ready to take on these challenges despite despite not having external resources, right? She's going to rely on herself, which we've all been told to do. You don't need anybody else. You can just, just you know, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. And so you've moved, you move into, um, you move through high school, it sounds like, and get into college and, and move into the nursing field. Yeah. Yes. I started nursing school when I was 21. Finished when I was 23. Yeah, there was a, a a divorce in that time with Caitlin's dad. Um, and yeah, 23. I I think I was pretty grounded. Actually, still, you know, I had um, I didn't know what I didn't know yet at that time. I didn't. I it didn't. Let me think about this for a second. So like I mentioned, I had gone through um, about a year and a half of kind of using methamphetamines when I was 18, 19 years old before nursing school. And um, I knew that I had an affinity for, is that the word affinity? I knew I had a predisposition to addiction, but I didn't know the word addiction. I did not like connect that to me at all. I just knew that I felt good when I used substances and got out of my head. I, I didn't know what that meant at the time. Now I, you know, I know so I, I get it. I liked as a teenager, I liked psychedelics, I liked methamphetamines, and opiate give the same type of energy and euphoria to me that methamphetamines do, which a lot of people experience. that become addicted to them. People who don't become addicted, they have nausea, they get tired, drowsy, they don't like, they get itchy. And then people who get addicted to opiates tend to feel, they either love being like the super sleepy out of their head or like me, get this weird energy and euphoria. So I knew that I enjoyed substances, but I had no clue that I was or could be an addict or that I actually needed help. Because I just, I quit. I quit using them. I was like, nope, I'm a grown-up. I'm a wife. I'm a mom. I'm going to go to nursing school. So I just don't need those anymore. And and that, that worked. I actually thought when I graduated from nursing school, I 100% believed that nurses did not use drugs. Like, I didn't know. I thought, I just thought, well, we're not allowed to. So that there, that came like my respect for authority, right? Like I actually do follow rules. <laughs> there's, we're going to get drug tested. So nurses, there's no way they smoke weed. There's no way that they drink to excess, right? That would be ridiculous. We're in charge of other people's lives. And that was kind of my youthful, you know, naivete. Is that the word? Naivete? Na- yeah. Uh, again, and I was really loving, you know, being a mom and caring for somebody. And, you know, codependency, that's a whole big part of the story too, right? A lack of boundaries and a lack of understanding of who you're really caring for and lack of self-care. 
I was able to busy myself with caring for others, being a mom and being a nurse. It was great. It was, it was great. (laughs) I found a lot of purpose in caring for others. And that, that worked for a few years, but I was on the fast track to, okay, I need to get married again. I need to have another kid. I'm like, I saw the age 30 in front of me and I, I needed to achieve things before 30. I need to get my bachelor's degree, own a home, get married, have another kid, you know, get a stepdad for Caitlin, get things lined up because that's what life is supposed to look like. And that is what we've been told life's supposed to look like. I mean, you were, those are all, you were responding perfectly to the stimuli. It's Tiffany, well done. <laughs> right. And, and to me, as I listen to all of that, I think I just reflect back to something you said earlier about, you know, your, about self-love and, and self-worth, right? So more and more and more, we always need more and more and more to, make us okay, to make us okay in the eyes of the world and to fill whatever black holes inside of us. But of course, there is never enough. No, there's never, never enough. enough. When Caitlin know? was probably eight-ish, I um, I mean, I seemingly had it all, right? I had the, the good looking boyfriend who was going to be the husband. I owned my own home already. I had a good career. I, you know, I had things, I had the things, but I just felt anxious and depressed all the time. I I did not feel good on the inside. And I thought, um, maybe it's because I'm lacking faith. I don't have a spiritual life. And I, and I started to panic as Caitlin got a little older. I had initially raised her to like, we read books about world religions at the library. And I was not going to raise her in the Christian religious way I was raised. But I panicked before I got married and I went, I, oh my God, I am, I need to role model to Caitlin the right way. And, and I don't know the right way. Maybe my life is a mess. Maybe I'm so sad and sick because I left the church and maybe my mom is right. And I went back to church for a couple of years and um, I was just desperately seeking, honestly, I, I, and I didn't, I didn't know where to turn. I didn't know anybody who had other options or offerings to say, you know, try, what if, you know, maybe Buddhism is right for you, or maybe, maybe no religion at all is right for you. I I didn't have any of that. So I just went back to what I did know. And I thought, um, I, I wouldn't live with my boyfriend before we got married, because I, I was just like, okay, I've already done it the other way. And that didn't work out getting pregnant before marriage. So I'm going to try my hardest to do it the quote unquote right way in the eyes of the conservatives. <laughs> and, and I mean that it blew up. It absolutely, you know, my, that relationship blew up and I tried out a few different like community churches and nothing was sticking Nothing felt right. Nothing felt good. Nothing felt real because it wasn't intuition that was leading me. It was desperation and trying to do what was right in the eyes of others. 
Yeah. So bring us to, you know, what I like to call your bathroom floor moment. Bring us to that moment where it wasn't, it was going to be real apparent that shit was going to change. I mean, well, that came years later because the, the, I did get married to that, the, that guy and, you know, 14 months later we were, we were divorced. I was packing my stuff and leaving. Um, and I got right into another relationship and it was the complete opposite. So it's like, I just kept jumping to the, to the opposite thing that maybe this will fill me, maybe this will work. And this relationship that, you know, the next one was, he was a very, he was a heavy drinker and, so I went from being conservative myself to, you know what? It doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't work out anyway. So let's just live kind of a party. And I I regressed to being a teenager at 30 years old. And um, we spent, you know, seven years together, he and I. And that's where things got really bad. That's where things got bad. That's where I got a prescription for opiates for migraines. Um, I was drinking heavy to keep up with him. And I knew, so two years into our relationship, he was unfaithful. And I just broke, I broke, I fragmented. And because uh, I thought for sure, like, this was it, this was true love, right? So when I found out he was unfaithful, I could not stand the thought of another breakup. I'd been through too many in my life. I felt so, so uh, unworthy is not even the word. I felt just so ridiculous that other people had it together. And how could I have not gotten it together by 30 something years old? And instead of leaving him, which I knew was the right thing to do in my heart, I just numbed myself for the next five years of our, our relationship. I just got really, really numb. and. Um, the use of opiates just increased, obviously, tolerance, physical dependence. And I was drinking morning till night for, yeah, for, for those years. And um, he found me, we went out to dinner one night and I left to go to the bathroom in the middle of dinner and he found me pretty much passed out on a toilet in the restaurant. He had to come into the women's restroom to get me. And luckily we had biked to the restaurant. Um, he pulled a bag of pills out of my purse and realized, you know, what had happened. And I guess he kind of half carried, half walked me home with the bikes. And, you know, a lot of little things had happened up till then. He and I together been like, you know, we should try not to drink so much. We should, you know, let's be sober for five days here and there. But he had no idea the the use of, you know, the abuse of Vicodin that was going on. Um, nobody did. But I, th I think it was after that kind of being found out. Um, literally, literally on the bathroom. Well, no, I was on the toilet. I was still. <laughs> yeah. Okay. 
Yeah. I mean, I knew, I knew. And I, you know, I'd been seeing a therapist kind of off and on. And she was like, you know, this is out of my wheelhouse. This is a chemical dependency issue. This is, you know, this is more than just you're not happy in a relationship. Like, I think maybe you need to find somebody who who you can talk to about this. And, um, and I, I did, I did, it took, it was very hard to find someone to help because they turn nurses away because of duty to report. So I, I reached out. And do you report that is so what is that mean? counselors? If a if a nurse or a licensed personnel is has a substance abuse issue, substance abuse disorder, substance use disorder, and they are either impaired at work, they are danger to themselves or others, then the counselor has to report them to the state. They're supposed to. So I reached out to a few counselors to say, hey, I think I have a problem with pills. I have a prescription, but I I have a problem. And I, you know, by that point, I really had crossed every boundary. And I mean, this, it's very public knowledge. I stole narcotics from work by this point. Um, We'll say like 2015. Okay. is about the time. And um, so they they were like, no, I can't. You need to turn yourself into the state if you have a problem. And I I don't want my name on that. I don't want to be a part of it. But I did. I found one amazing woman who I the first day I went into her office and I said I have a problem with with opiates, and I've been really unhappy my you know my whole life for decades. And she said, of course, you have a problem with opiates. They make you feel better. You did you did the best that you knew how to do. You found something that made the pain go away. Of course you did. And she hugged me. And she said, you know, like she didn't even know me. She's like, I love you. It's going to be okay. So that was like the beginning of the end of the the really bad times. But I mean, it was, it was still a couple years before I truly got like into recovery, like a year and a half. Um, But that was where I saw some light that I wasn't just a bad person. I mean, that's all I could see was what a, all, you know, the guilt and the shame and what a bad, bad person I'd become. Yeah, you know, that moment where you learned that your partner was cheating on you. See, to me, that was the moment, if I was to catalog things, I would say um, that was your rock bottom. Because how I view things is that those are the moments where we can really choose what we're going to do, right? So your rock, as I, I mean, I'm telling you your story, tell me I'm wrong, but your rock bottom moment was not that bathroom stall, but it was learning a really alarming, horrifying, terrible thing and lacking resources, lacking intuition, lacking self-love, saying, I'm just going to double down on this. I'm going to numb the fuck out. And Tiffany, I got to tell you, women stay there fucking decades. They stay there. I mean, I have a dear friend who had that moment and she's still in it. And that moment happened two decades ago. So you are so brave and you are so inspiring. And, And you know what? My friend who's still in it, she's really brave. And frankly, she's really inspiring. 
Because when you can see, when you can watch somebody do that, I mean, what I, what I took from watching her do that was I'm never going to do that. Right. I mean, I like in a way, sometimes the, the women who have really taken the long road in, in their addiction, like committed to the addiction in a way that they never come out of it. I sometimes think of them as the bravest souls because they've just swallowed the disease in such a way. And by disease, I mean just the disease of disconnect. I don't mean that we are diseased. I mean the just dis-ease. the thinking. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And they become our greatest teachers, right? So, I mean, thank you so much for sharing that story and – um, and thank you so much for walking, for keep calling. I mean, you kept calling counselors. You kept, you know, that just takes me back to that beautiful 16-year-old girl in the living room getting married. Like, she was still there. She was like, no, we're going to keep calling. You know, I mean, our, our, inner, our inner leader is ba- – they're badasses. <laughs> yeah. I do have that just keep going spirit. I mean, that – I, that it's, that's innately me. I mean, that I have cultivated a lot of coping skills over the years that I didn't necessarily have, but that, that is something I'm grateful I, I was just born with or whatever, you know, like you do, you just, you just keep going forward. Um, you do the next thing that you're supposed to do. And I guess it's, I guess it's optimism. I don't know. Like, just what we need to do. So when do you feel like, because you did lose no, your no, license. No, no. Yes. No. So mo- yeah. Most okay. states have an alternative to discipline program. And I, um, I didn't actually even lose my job. So most people, most nurses will lose their job in most states, but um, they can retain their license if they go through an alternative to discipline program. It's like probation. For me, it's a five-year contract. I have 17 months left and my license will be unmarred as long as I stay the course, stay compliant and finish probation. Um, I took three months off work. It was not enough time, but that's what I did. I went to treatment, outpatient treatment, and then the part of the probation is like ongoing peer support groups and, um, you know, meeting with nurses once a week. And so, I'm, you know, I'm still like in ongoing sort of aftercare treatment. Every case is different. So my, my case of not losing my license is not the same for everybody. Um, but yeah, that, that's where I'm at. I still have a, an unenforced, unmarred Washington state nursing license. And I work, and I have two jobs. I work as a med- in a medical intensive care unit and I work as a nurse instructor. So that's, I mean, we haven't even gone into all of that, but just the stigma of being a healthcare professional with an addiction, an out of control addiction, losing, I felt like I had like no integrity, you know, all of this time I'd put into caring for others. And then, and then I crossed all these boundaries of being an impaired nurse and, oh my God, the shame and the stigma. And nobody talks about it in nursing. Nobody talks about recovery. I didn't even know there was recovery for nurses. I mean, I, and there is 
there's there's tons. It's just hidden, right? It's like underground where you can't see it. You don't know it exists. Um, finding my way through that and coming to the other side has been like phenomenal. I mean, not first I had this double life of being an addict and a nurse, and then I had a double life of being in recovery and a nurse. And then after about a year in recovery, I was like, okay, this is ridiculous. I I am a whole person with a lot of different flaws and strengths and, and layers and stories. And that should all be okay. You know, I don't have to be fragmented. (laughs) Um, so, so yeah, today I, you know, I, I work full time as, as a nurse and my biggest fear was that I would lose my license and my job. And that's why I didn't tell anybody for a long time. But if you're a nurse out there, you should know <laughs> that's usually not the case. Yeah. So I want to be mindful of time. I mean, I have so many questions about how you navigated all of that. And, and also I just want to, I want to just recognize Tiffany, another badass, you know, characteristic that you have, because you truly are being a leader in the medical profession right now by sharing your story so openly and, you know, and with such honesty and your writing has been picked up by a number of online publications. And as you've been on panels talking about this, I mean, you are out front sharing this and it, and I can only imagine the number of healthcare professionals that even if you will never hear from them, hear from you and take your story and your guidance to heart. Thank you. That's, that's all, that's what I hope for. You know, I thought something good better fucking come of this. (laughs) That's, that's what I, I, I thought, because this is not how I thought my life would turn out. It's not what i you know, predicted for myself, it's better. In so many ways, it's better. But going through the the really, really dark stuff and, and, you know, I, I thought somebody's got a benefit besides me, besides me. That's not enough. You know, it's not enough to just get clean. Somebody needs to benefit. And it really sucked that for years, there, there was actually all this, all these resources available that I didn't know about. So yeah, that is my absolute mission is to make it known recovery is available and possible. You have a beautiful website. Are those resources on your website or links to those resources? Yes. If they're not today, they will be soon. We're in the midst of my website masters in the midst of making a resources page. Um, why don't you tell us what you're, tell us where, where yeah. I'm not letting you go because I have just a few more questions for you, but um, where can people find you online? www.recoverandrise.com. That's my business website. My blog is www.scrubbedcleanrn.com. That one's much more fun to read. That's where all the juicy details are. But Recover and Rise is my work website. And you have a fantastic Instagram. Yeah, that's Scrub Clean RN. I love that. I love it so much. So when you reflect back on, you know, from that moment 
of um, like your bathroom stall moment and and moving forward from there. When when do you think you started to hear from your intuition and your inner leader and your your GPS? How and how did that happen for you? Can you share with the listeners who you know? I in my in my experience, and I would you know like to hear what you're hearing too from your your clients and just the people that you guide through this. There's such a mystery yeah. there, right? So can you just share well, your for thoughts me, on ju- that? journaling is huge um, because I write down things sometimes that, you know, when we, when we let our just hand flow or the computer or whatever, things will come out and then we have to read them and then we have to face those truths. So my journal is full of why are you doing this again? Why are you making this decision again? You know better. You've been better. I put them on paper and I have to read them then and I have to see them instead of just having the thought that maybe this relationship isn't right for me. I would look at a journal and see the feelings and the pain that go along with that relationship and questioning of myself. So so I think seeing it on, on paper helped me to start to believe that maybe this is not okay and I could make different choices. But But really the it was going to my first She Recovers retreat. And this is not like a plug for She Recovers at all. But truly, I took, I had never taken time for myself like that before. The first summer that I went was 2017. And um, I took five days with about 30 other women who were in some story of some kind of pain themselves and I disconnected from the relationship. I disconnected from substances. I mean, I'd been sober for a bit, but I took time for me and it felt good and it felt right. And I had the, the validation from other women finally, which is what I had never had. I, it's hard to believe you can trust yourself when you don't know anybody else that does trust themselves. Why would I think why would I think that I could if I hadn't seen that modeled yet? So to be with powerful women who weren't powerful because they were perfect, they're powerful because they lived through these difficult stories and they still found love for themselves and they still found love for each other. Then I saw that that was validation. I think I'm, I think I'm right. I think I can do this. I think, I think I don't have to live in a toxic relationship. And I think I don't have to, you know, drink secretly and hurt myself. There's a better life out there. Does that make sense? I had to see it. I had to hear it from, from someone else who had been through it to believe it myself. Absolutely. And it gives me goosebumps and it brings tears to my eyes. And it is, I mean, it is the red tent, (laughs) you know, we're creating our own red tent. And by red tent, I, I, there was a book many years ago that talks about women gathering, um, you know, during their menstruation cycles. And in that time when they would all be under the same tent, they would share information and support and they would provide to one another what you just described. They would model self-love. 
And um, that is really beautiful, Tiffany. So how are you – so as we as we do move to wrap up here, you are an ICU nurse. So you are on the floor with um, COVID-19 patients right now, and you're working a lot. Uh, you're definitely working more than you usually do is what I – right? Yeah. So how are you taking care of yourself, number one? And – um, what do you, what do you find yourself? Well, let me, let me let you answer that question. So how are you taking care of yes. yourself first? So I, I am calling into action all of the coping mechanisms I've cultivated over the last few years. So it's meditation is a kind of a non-negotiable right now. Even if it's five minutes in a day, I have to focus my mind or listen to something, you know, encouraging, I do some kind of guided meditation every day. I move my body in some way. My gym is closed. I usually do physical fitness for recovery. That's been very difficult. And I have this level of high alert anxiety that's like, I wish I could use it to go for a run, but it's a, it's kind of paralyzing <laughs> at times. So moving my body today was just like stretching. That's all I could do this morning. Um, but I have done some yoga online yoga with like Taryn or other, there's lots of resources for that and hugging my dog and checking in with my family via text or phone calls and, and then dealing with my, my thought patterns just a little bit at a time. Like I'm using what does that look like? So, what does that mean to deal well, with your thought pattern? For a few days this week, after I worked a bunch of shifts in a row, and then my first day off, it felt unmanageable. My my Physically, I was just buzzing with anxiety. It was like intravascular buzzing. And then, you know, emotionally, it was this panicky feeling. And I'm not a panicky person. I'm actually like these days, <laughs> a friend of mine told me that. She's like, this is not you. You're not panicky. You don't worry about stuff but I'm empathic. And so I'm picking up the world's worries right now. So I started, I just start having thoughts of, of everybody who's suffering and the economic suffering and the, the moms at home and, oh my gosh, it can just go and go. Right. And I, I remembered yesterday <laughs> that I don't have to believe my thoughts. I mean, I, I learned that a few years ago in mindfulness. I took mindfulness-based relapse prevention course. It was amazing. Highly recommend it. And, and I've used that, not believing my thoughts for the last few years. I question my thoughts and I let them go and I, I watch them. I don't attach to them. Well, for a few days in the last two weeks, maybe not just a few days, but the last two weeks, I have been attaching to thoughts again, letting them direct my emotions and letting them direct my actions and I don't have to, right? I don't have to. Just, just because there's some pandemic happening, I don't have to believe my thoughts about it, right? So I am calling back into action the guiding principles of mindfulness. Um, I, I do like a, a secular Buddhist type mindfulness. So equanimity, which is composure during stress, a balanced viewpoint. Equanimity is a beautiful thing right now. Loving kindness, generosity, compassion. There's some more. But, but you know, balance, compassion, self-compassion. 
So I, I take any, any thoughts that are not in alignment with those values. I know that they're probably not true. They're not serving me. And so I can, yeah, take a deep breath and I can let those go. Most of the time. And there's your self-compassion, right? No beating myself up right now. Yeah. Yeah. So how are you, I, I'm, I've been using a phrase the last couple of days, um, spiritually prepping. I feel like those of us who have spent the past few years or some, you know, some women decades in recovery have been spiritually prepping for this moment and we can be ambassadors to help the people we are in community with be, you know, become aware of the, the beautiful things, the beautiful words that you just said that a lot of times if you were to say that to just any lay person on the street, they would look at you like you have three heads. Like, oh my gosh, there's a pandemic and you're just practicing loving kindness. <laughs> yeah. Right? So how, how are you bringing that besides being able to, one, um, practice those practice those for yourself and then you can bring just being yourself and going into these spaces with patients and with other medical providers. And I mean, you even mentioned um, to me that, you know, you're really thankful for the um, like the janitorial staff at the hospital. I mean, like the people you're touching with your mind, with your mindfulness practices just by being centered and not being panicked. Right. Well, that's just like this, a ripple effect that we'll never know. So there's, there's that. But my question is, do you do you find yourself coaching uh, your yeah, your community and using some of these skills um, in an unexpected way? I don't know if I would call it unexpected. I I mean, I have become somebody in the last few years that people turn to <laughs> for better or worse. Um, you know, my 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 phone is pretty full of of texts and messages and, you know, questions of like, how can I just look, they're looking for encouragement, right? Or just looking for that calm, composed personality. And um, I, I really am just trying to be very aware of my, my words and my thoughts and my actions, because like you said, it does trickle down. It does. And so I am I'm just extra careful right now. I'm extra careful. I'm extra aware. I'm also being careful with boundaries though too, because that can go too far for somebody who's naturally, you know, codependent and empathic. So boundaries are super important, like knowing how to say no to an extra shift or whatever is really important. Um, I don't know if I'm answering your question right, but how am I careful? Yeah, I mean, I totally. I, I mean, we become. Well, you have become exactly who you that sixteen-year-old girl in that living room wanted to be. Yeah, yeah, right. A leader, somebody who's taking care of others, someone who you can count on. It's kind of beautiful. Mm. Thank you. Yeah, I hope so. I, I I mean, this morning, you know, it hasn't been all been pretty. I'm going to say that I had I've had a couple of, you know, bad days. That's no surprise. I'm very human. And 
And I've had, you know, yesterday, actually, I kind of felt like I was on a ledge a little bit. And, you know, you and I talked earlier in the week, and we were talking about what our numbers were, right? Like at a 10, you're, you're in the liquor store on the floor drinking. And I, I said, I was at a seven. And that's, it's very true. I've been at a seven plus at some moments. And today, I told myself, I reminded myself that I have a choice of how I go through this. I do not have to be swept up by emotion. I don't have to be swept up by a history of substance use. I don't have to regress or revert to those maladaptive coping mechanisms. I don't have to. So it's kind of the same as I don't have to believe my thoughts. And um, that was a good, it was, it, I needed to hear that from myself today. That this, I, I have a choice to come through this time with my integrity intact and my sobriety intact and to be better for it and to serve others in a way that is meaningful and helpful. Because the introverted, scared, default part of myself really kind of wanted to hide in a dark cave until it all went away. But yeah, that's not what I've been prepped for. That's not who I'm meant to be. So I'm going to keep showing up for me and, and for other people, however that looks. You're so wonderful. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Tiffany. Thank you. Thank you for taking a precious hour out of your time off away from the hospital mm-hmm. right now to have this conversation. And thank you for just being yourself. Thank you for, I'm, you know, I mean, thank you for loving yourself. I mean, I, I really, more and more, you know, things are becoming simplified. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like, what do you really need at the grocery store? We suddenly know exactly what we need at the grocery store, you know? Who, yeah, who do you want to who do you want to isolate with? Well, that's a very small <laughs> list of people. So things are becoming very clear in this global moment in this pandemic. And um, you know, honestly, there is such clarity right now in, in my heart around self love. And so, really, what I want to thank you for, Tiffany, is for practicing and modeling self love and claiming it, claiming it, radical self love. Innate worthiness, right? There doesn't have to be, you don't earn it. You do not earn unconditional love. You just, you are love. You get to own love. Yeah. Stay safe. We will check in. And um, I'm just very, very grateful. Me too. Wash your hands. (laughs) thank you for listening to the she recovers podcast we hope you will share rate subscribe and help us spread the word you can always find out more about she recovers our intentions and guiding principles upcoming events and retreats recovery coaching online yoga and so much more on our website sherecovers.co And while you're there, sign up for our newsletter so that we can stay in touch.